Hi, and welcome to ContraCast. My name is Kat Boyd, and I'm joined with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Fine. Um, I've kind of got my head, um, which only people who went to, like, Catholic school will really get this. But in my head, I've got a sort of, like, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been many weeks since my last podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That was, like, the set. Um, the set thing that you said when you went to confession forgive mm-hmm. me father for I have sinned it has been x since my last confession and um, and that would be like your set preamble for opening up your session in terms of like what you were there to confess so it's been stuck in my head that it's been many many weeks since my last podcast so I hope our listeners will forgive us I've got some I've got some prod chat about this uh, I think I was saying this to you recently. I was saying this to you about during your wedding because we were talking about the confessional as an institution. The confession was established after the Reformation um, for a number of purposes. So people tend to think of Catholic traditions as sort of eternal, but of course they're always developing throughout the church's history. And the, the confession was part of um, the Counter-Reformation. So it was an attempt to bind congregations emotionally to the church. Um, but also, of course, it, uh, it's good for heresy hunting. Like the, the idea is that if you had doubts in the veracity of the truth of the church, you could, um, you could confess those doubts to the priest. And he could not, not punish you, but he would be able to console you that, you know, that the, the, the was the one to, true church and so on. It's a very, I find it a very inter- interesting institution because, of course, we live in a very confessional culture today, as we've discussed on the podcast. Um, and I, I wonder what social phenomenon that's a response to. Uh, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I don't doubt your um, your account there. I mean, obviously, Catholic traditions like are shaped over time due to the circumstances, like mostly the political circumstances within the church. I mean, I think that confession is so important and, like, is that latter thing about binding people to the church. But I think that people, human beings, regardless of faith, religion, spirituality, whatever, like, you know, people who have no faith at all, I think that people do need somewhere to confess. I mean, obviously, this is one of the central points that Christopher Lash makes in his um, Culture of Narcissism text, where Mm. he talks about the replacement of the like the priest class with um, with therapy, and um, particularly, you know, in the 1950s, 1960s America, how you, people are suddenly propelled, ordinary people um, are suddenly propelled into therapy and in, in a way to confess their sins rather than, you know, doing that within the religious setting. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and and that idea of a therapeutic culture goes goes beyond kind of formal therapy into, um, you know, we, we have a culture which is about that in general. So we've talked about modern literature is almost entirely about the, the concept of, of confession and therapy. So it's all written in the first person narrative. It's all about um, an expression of kind of emotional truths. I mean, that's true of literature more generally but in our generation um like literature is entirely bound up with this phenomenon and it extends to things like self-help i mean the whole concept of self-actualization is a therapeutic concept 
but it's become the dominant sort of cultural attitudes about how you develop as a person in general, about moral attitudes, like uh, about education. Education's become extremely important to modern capitalist society in a way that it, it wasn't uh, in, in previous points in the development of capitalism. And all of these fields are deeply impacted by these therapeutic models and these therapeutic uh, ideas. But I, I mean, the, pod, the podcast is a, is a, you could, could say is a therapeutic tradition. Yeah, I mean, I think we do live in a confessional culture, but there's things that, you know, people would say in a therapeutic or like confession, like religiously confessional environment that they would not share on Twitter. I think the point is like the point is that people are essentially seeking some kind of forgiveness in the the kind of latter two, some kind of, um, you know, absolution for your sins mm-hmm. with that type of private confession and the public confessional culture that we live in is that I don't think it's about, I don't think that the motivation is about seeking forgiveness. Yeah. 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 It's more, it's more about self-exposure and promotion and, and, and also like it's competitive. So denunciation and stuff like that. Um, do you know uh, this? I've been thinking about this a lot uh, with COP twenty six coming up because it occurs. It's not. I'm not the first person to make this point by any means, but it occurs to me that modern environmentalism shares um, a lot of kind of cultural touch points with with confessional culture in general, but also with the whole concept of. Um, religion and God as like an, uh, uh, a manifestation of alienated power, right? So you see this thing about needing to confess and needing to confess your sins and 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 uh, uh, and be reconciled in some way with an authority. Um, it's so evident in the discourse around environmentalism. Like it's so evident in you know, like you know, like the Freudian idea of God as like um, <clears throat> and, a, and a supreme authority that you can appeal to who's always threatening to punish you. And there's a sense in which that punishment is sort of desired because it can cleanse you of your uncertainties and your anxieties. Um, it can cleanse you of the, the, the wrongs that you feel that you have done, are doing deep down. There's a very, very similar way that people talk about um, nature right as though it were a being and as though it were a singular consciousness that exists entirely outside of human civilization right and it's always threatening to punish us one of the ones that people always say to me say to me over and over again is like when you talk about this concept of uh, human extinction you know extinction rebellion stuff like that this idea of like an apocalypse that i'm quite dubious about to be honest but they always say look nature will be fine Right. The problem isn't that we are going to extinguish nature. The problem is that nature is going to extinguish us. Right. Which is it sounds kind of very moral. It sounds like, you know, human being, know your place. Right. You're not all that powerful. Nature produced you and will chew you up and spit you out right? because it's really powerful. That is such an obvious deification of nature. Right. This idea, first of all, of a real separation between man and nature 
And second of all, this idea that nature is ultimately all powerful and that our sins are going to result in us being destroyed by this deity, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the reason this is this concept of God and the desire for punishment has come back is partly to do with like the the impact that neoliberalism has had on the human psyche, like the almost um, like consequence free collective behavior changes that have happened as collective institutions have been dismantled. I'm not just talking about like the church or religion, I'm talking about like trade unions and mass organizations of the working class where essentially you were, to use a a very word of the zeitgeist, you were held accountable by your community. But ultimately that's what that was within collective institutions. If you broke a picket line, if you broke a picket line during the minor strike, you were, I mean, you were a black leg and your family thereafter were black legs. And still, if you go to certain communities within the north of England, people will still talk about either their family being ostracized because of, you know, scabs within their family. Or people will talk about, yeah, that those people down the road there, they broke the minor strike. So there was a degree of accountability within those collective institutions. As all collective institutions have waned, what's essentially happened is that nobody's held accountable by fuck all right (laughs) is that people just have free reign but the psyche of the human mind still has this need to be accountable to something a code of conduct a moral system a community like whatever that is and I do think that that is part of why confessional culture manifests itself online in the way that it does is part of cancel culture is that you know people are really I think that there's a, a a need for wish fulfillment of like, I want to be cancelled, I must be punished. And you're totally right to pick this up within the environmental movement. Especially when we think of the like the punishing God of medieval times, the interventionist punishing God, and like how nature is essentially being, or the environment rather, is being portrayed as that all-powerful punishing God now. Because in medieval times, you would obviously, you would have the the prophets of doom (laughs) that would would come along. And, you know, the environmental movement has its own essential prophet of doom in Greta Thunberg. And, you know, that kind of, the way that she delivers her message, talking about the coming fire that's uh, going to punish humanity for essentially what are our sins. Um, and I can really, I mean, I can almost picture her in medieval times, like, you know, delivering a very similar message of hellfire. Yeah, people often compare her to Joan of Arc, but there, there are much better comparisons who are just much less famous. It was quite common for child prophets to emerge during periods of, um, like, stress in the feudal system. Uh, who would denounce rulers or who would caution rulers or would tell rulers um, you're, you know, there's there's a Thomas Cromwell type figure who's too close to the king who needs to be banished, right? So there were child Catholic preachers who emerged in England during the Reformation who said this. Um, But it was, I mean, this is very common. So during the Crusades, there were entire child Crusades where armies of children picked up sticks and went to the Holy Land to fight. Um, And 
during periods of extreme social crisis, and people forget the Crusades actually resulted in some of the kind of first proto-reformations, where Crusaders would return to overthrow local uh, rulers. But um, during this period of intense crisis, uh, one thing that tends to happen is that adult authority breaks down and uh, adults and the adult world and the adult hierarchy of classes starts referring to children, right? This like obviously serves a certain social purpose, which is it's very difficult to criticise children. You can hide your own power behind children, right? But there's also a deep spiritual belief, which isn't even necessarily Christian, right? Though it's in Christianity, but which is pagan, which is children are closer to the spirit world, children and old people, right? They are pure. They're unsullied by the world. Um, they are, they, they have recently emerged from or will return to the spirit realm. And so they, um, they, they bring these pure moral values and so on. Um, the interesting thing about Greta Thunberg is she's still very much portrayed as a child. And I wonder if she'll still be being portrayed as a child when she's 30 or 40, right? Like a, a very strange cultural performance is, is sort of taking place around this individual. And what you see, and I, I, don't, I don't blame this on Greta Thunberg. I'm talking about our culture. Right? I'm talking about ruling culture in general. She's toured from venue to venue, from Pope to the UN to COP26, to be applauded by the rich and powerful. Um, and they are at once kind of absolved and they can hold up their hands and say, don't say that this performance is, is wrong or cynical because look, the, the child's, um, you know, the, the, the child prophet is here, right? You cannot criticize. We have to, we have to hear, we need to be accountable, et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, I muted myself. Um, no, completely. I mean, I think that those pa- the problem with a lot of those parallels is that they've been used by the the right to discredit the politics of like the environmental movement. Yeah. The, like a lot of the critique of Greta Thunberg has focused on the fact that she does bear this resemblance to the kind of sexless, uh, childlike young women prophets all of medieval times um, and so do you know what I mean like I know that this is <laughs> it's very marshy terrain for us to be on but there is an element of truth in it and that's the problem um, is that you know I saw this really grim Extinction Rebellion poster quite near my house recently I think I told you about it before but it's probably worth mentioning here um, it was a picture of like a skeleton and maybe an hourglass, uh, which are two, I think, very medieval symbols, very fucking medieval. I mean, I was recently in Malta in the St. John's Cove Cathedral, and you've got like skeletons and hourglasses on tombstones and carved in marble mm-hmm. on the floor. Yeah. It's um, something like, act now because it's too late. And I'm just like, there's no real like hopeful motivation message here for ordinary people. It, and when, you know, right-wingers call Extinction Rebellion a death cult and those sorts of things, I always take it with a pinch of salt. But then I see things like that and I'm like, mm, elements of truth, like shades of grey. 
Thanks because it's too late is literally repent. It's honestly repent and it is a reactionary message. It is a completely reactionary message. Do you know, though, here's where I differ with the kind of right-wing critique of the movement, though, right? It's apocalyptic, yes. Uh, You know, it has these strange rituals and symbols and liturgies, right? Um, But that's, that's what ideology is, right? I mean, like, the Shepherd's Crusade that I referred to, this is a kind of, like... Um, poor people's crusade that returned from the Holy Land, you know, proclaiming the imminent return of Christ and the destruction of the ungodly world. They were crackers, right? I mean, they were fanatical. They lost it. They also were performing, I mean, let's say a historically, you know, progressive function. They were reacting against real problems, right? And seeking to address them in the, um, with all the moral and intellectual and ideological baggage of the society from which they emerged. For me, it's not a question of dismissal. It's a question of, um, you know, criticism of all the existing conditions in society, including people who are offering resistance to the official structures of society, and including when those resisting and those ruling end up, as they inevitably do, in these strange bargains and rituals and intermingling with each other right um it is the case with literally every ruling class in history and certainly the capitalist class which has become extremely adept at doing this that it needs to find some kind of common ground or some kind of joint ritual or joint liturgy between the the dissenting and and the powerful and often using the dissenting to reinforce the rule of the powerful i mean i thought it was really interesting that greta thunberg um invited striking workers in Glasgow onto the big demonstration, um, the big climate strike demonstration. I I actually think, and I didn't think this would be the case, right, because I think I have imagined her as a kind of, because she's projected as this child, right, that she's sort of naive in a way. She's actually been at times relatively robust to the attempts to incorporate her. Yes and no. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? She she has ended up touring the circuit of establishment binos and, and, you know, corporate hangouts and so on. That that has become her political practice. But there's still autonomy there. Like, there's still a degree of, like, she's still aware that she's get she knows she's getting the fob off, right? But she's having to play this game, which every, you know, child prophet in the Middle Ages had to decide how much they were going to break from the ruling elite how much they were going to accommodate with the ruling elite, what the best best path forward was. And I think that that's an interesting process. Just, I mean, the point is you can go too far and just shrug your shoulders at world events and say the rich and powerful are in total control of this situation. They've got it all planned out. Greta Thunberg's a dupe. Uh, Everyone's a dupe. (laughs) Everyone who's protesting is just reinforcing their own you know, slavery and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's the way the world works at all. And I think that ruling class campaigns, ideological campaigns can backfire as well. Their attempts to to turn something like the climate change narrative into one that where they are just reinforcing their own interests, that can backfire just as the Crusades backfire. Um, you know. Well, I, I think you're right. Like, I think it was an important moment where Greta Thunberg invited the striking workers to join the, the demonstration on the 5th. 
because this, I mean, this is not just a problem of the climate crisis movement or the environmental movement. This has also been a problem in the left. Like whenever you have movements where there's a sense of like the world is ending, like it's all going to, it's all going to burn. Come over here. I have the answer. Mm. Like is doomed to failure because it doesn't actually speak to the actually existing material reality that people find themselves in. So I think it was a really good move to try and like bind these groups together because even on the left, like, and you will offend this as well. Like there's a, I mean, let's just strip it back. Right. Let's talk about the far left, you know, again, the the people who are close to the spirit world, aka the old. And I don't say that to slag off old people, you know I will not stand for elder abuse. But like older men, big white beards, um, a copy of a big book. You know, you've got your copy of Capital, and there are predictions made within this book that to be honest, like there there are there's something that's quite patchy and you know as as a debate within anti-capitalist and Marxist circles about the tendency of the uh, long-term rate of profit to fall there are debates around that but it's like it doesn't matter this is the answer and if you join with me and follow me then you too will be saved and we've seen that on the left loads and what it does is it creates um sects it creates like very insular sect-like cult-like behavior and you end up with these like you know ever decreasing circles of activists and like the reality is is that like climate crisis is happening the emergency is real and I would hate for that to be be a, a, a major factor within the environmentalist movement because I think that there are things that you know people do have to listen to but the more it is portrayed in those terms the more difficult it is for you know people to actually engage with it with the ideas um on a on an sort of even basis that speaks to their material reality you know i think you know so i've i've had this argument quite a lot now which i agree with which is stop saying that the world the end of the world is coming right now i think there's but there's two ways that this is usually pitched the dominant one is people just don't find it believable right that the world the end of the world is coming Here's the thing. I think people are right to not find it believable. Uh, right? Uh, I don't think the end of the world is coming. Right? Now, what do I mean by that? I, in some senses, the, the climate crisis, the environmental crisis, is worse than if there was just a sudden end point to human civilization. This is the thing. I think this the apocalyptic stuff reflects wishful thinking to an extent. I think what it reflects is Look, we've um, the the historical agency that the left depended on to change society, the working class. I say the left, right? I mean, it's revolutionary, radical kind of elements, right? Has been in abeyance for four decades, right? Interesting developments now on the industrial front, but still from a very, very relative, you know, low level of of struggle, workplace organisation, etc. So that historical agency, the human agency, um, left has has largely left the scene. And many people on the left want to find a kind of juice ex machina, which will sweep in and completely change the, 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 the dismantled fortunes of, of the modern left. And for some people, 
that this point in the near future, relatively near future, where human civilization will simply collapse under the weight of the climate crisis. The truth of the climate crisis is I don't, that's, that's not going to happen. Human civilization is too big, too advanced, too robust to be wiped away by some deluge. What's going to happen instead is there will, over the next 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, be increasing pressures on human civilization from environmental degradation. Resource competition uh, will increase. Conflict will increase. It will sharpen state competition, leading to all kinds of problems. The reason that's such a horror for the left is that it's not going to give us this, this juice it's mapping. It's not going to give us this, this great deluge that suddenly allows us to point at the torrents and say, we told you, we told you that capitalism was sinful behavior and that you would end up being punished. Now you should listen to us, right? Instead, what's going to happen is these increasing pressures will become prey for all kinds of reactionary particularist currents. Various religious groups will say, see, you didn't listen to God. Now weather events are getting worse. Um, ethnic groups will say there's depleting farmland. Get group XYZ off that farmland in any way, in any case, a thousand years ago, it was ours. Right. The, this, the, the, the environmental degradation in so many ways benefits reactionary and, and particularist claims on, on reducing resources uh, and so on. Think about the Great Depression, right? If any event was going to tell people that capital specifically was the problem, it would have been the Great Depression. Now, of course, there were uh, forces on the left pointed to the Great Depression and said, this confirms our criticism of capitalism um, as a mode of, of, of class society. But there were also people who said, uh, who made particularist critiques of the Great Depression. They said, well, it's not capitalism, it's Jewish capitalism. There is a, there's a section of finance who have done this to us, and it's part of their plan to degrade European civilization and so on. If you can do it with an event as sudden and catastrophic and obviously caused by capitalist relations as the Great Depression, you can do it with environmental decline. Particularist arguments are always going to have a certain capital. The point is, the left wasn't in a position to win the argument over the Great Depression because the working class wasn't strong enough. If things remain at this level and there start being more floods and hurricanes and deplete arable land and so on, particularist arguments will, will lose, will, will, will win out, sorry. Particularist arguments will be the ones that make immediate sense to people uh, on the ground. So if people think, and I think many do, that this is a trump card. It's really not. Like it really, really isn't. Um, and we are, we are going to be living with human civilization for the next hundred years, right? Facing the predicaments we currently face. There's a certain nihilism in thinking we keep losing the argument, right? For the way human society should be organized. Well, fuck it. The flood's coming anyway and people will either learn. Or, or it's like the game will be reset in some way. I, I think that's just a backward way of looking at things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely true. I think that's actually like a really helpful way of looking at it because this, this is also the problem with like the the kind of accelerationist position. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just like people who want everything to get really bad really quickly, and um, just to like sort of skip to the end, and maybe things will get so bad that people will 
react in this you know positive way but there has been very little evidence throughout history that people can be starved uh, bullied frightened into like revolutionary action people need to experience their own agency and the more that the climate change movement is saying things like you're all fucked which is essentially the message is that it's denying people the sense of agency that they ultimately need in order to be able to transform this, the whole system. Mm-hmm. I know and it's connected to a wider phenomenon as well, which is the much noted Frederick Jameson's disappearance of um, visions of the future, which are improvements on the present, right? There are almost no cultural products that make predict positive predictions for the future any longer. Um, and that's, de- that's deeply sort of, uh, bound up with this stuff. When when you can't say to people, let's go forward to this new future because then our lives will be better, all you've got left is to say, do you know everything that you love? It will be utterly destroyed unless you listen to me. But ultimately, that's quite a coercive message. And it is it is like it is born of frustration, but also a lack of belief in a in a positive alternative and a positive future. And it's not and it's so much part of our culture. I think that people don't realize how different it once was if you go back to the turn of the the 20th century for example you know people always like see those you know like tea towels that you can buy where and it says socialism is the future and a sun is rising over a hill and there's a family there's a nuclear family looking to the horizon the socialist horizon that really was the attitude of socialists 100 or so years ago it was follow me to the promised land also with its own religious connotations and so on that idea has completely disappeared like it it really has completely disappeared including on the left no one says follow me to the promised land anymore in fact people would say that that was scary people would say that sounds totalitarian look at you marching your you know 2.4 kids towards the sunrise what you know and and it's seen as almost more progressive to say the world is totally fucked right and it's going to get absolutely more fucked unless you listen to me the latter is the scarier. The, la- the latter is the more authoritarian in impulse. Yeah, but I mean, there's even like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think of like recent examples of, I mean, sorry, I just totally lost my train of thought because a bus went past the window. Welcome to my lockdown brain. I mean, the, the other thing I wanted to touch on here is the, um, the anti-natalist aspects of the environmental movement I see as a recently married woman and um, mm. I find like a lot of this stuff really really disturbing that the idea that people really need to be having less children like there's I mean there's articles this is not a fringe argument there's articles in mainstream newspapers by columnists talking about the carbon footprint of having children yeah and this I think that this is one of the most reactionary elements of the environmental movement politics. And I mean, I know I'm saying environmental movement. I mean that in the like broad as possible way in this, in this context. But the idea that if you choose to have children, then somehow that is, uh, that's inherently wrong because you're creating this whole carbon footprint. Or even the idea that, you know, how dare you bring them into a world that's so chaotic and terrible. I mean, that is, it's, the, the whole tone of it is pure reaction. I am, um, 
I was on a, a climate protest many years ago. I guess it was 2009. I think that's when Copenhagen was. I should have researched this. Uh, typical contrast, no research. Um, so it was Copenhagen, and I, I think that was 2009. I think it was that because I'm pretty sure that uh, on the London march, Ed Miliband was on it. And I remember someone saying to me, what are we protesting against? Because the government is on the march, right? So that, that those, these same problems with, for the environmental movement were present 10 years ago, obviously. Um, because again, the, the march in Glasgow will have that same phenomenon. The powerful will be on the march, right? So who are you marching against? Are you marching for an attitude, a moral attitude? Um, you know, what kind of protest is that? But anyway, um, uh, and there were three or four old men holding homemade placards back in the days when homemade placards were rare. These were the original hipster protesters and uh, they had written on their placard. The decline of the Trotsky's movement, I will say, the increase in homemade placards. Yes, yes. I mean, we were, I was in a Trotsky's group then, we were handing out, um, they were actually beautiful placards because they had that, what's that Japanese painting of that big wave? Okusai. Yeah, right. And I remember someone complaining. It might have been James Foley just looking at it. And obviously he was like, this environment, why are you going on this march? This is crap. And he, and, uh, he was saying, that's that's Japanese imperialist propaganda. Like you're you're literally handing out propaganda, militarist <laughs> imperialist propaganda on this march. But in any case, there was a nice piece of art on that demonstration that day. But there were these um, old guys who had the homemade placards that said, stop having kids. Right? and have less kids and stuff like that. And you could just tell that for them, the person who's having too many kids, by the way, is like a single mum, right? There was no question when you looked at these guys, that, and they had these big, like, grins on their faces, like, that's right. Do you know what I mean? They were kind of, like, getting in people's faces. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's, like, a... It's not can't be a religious thing, because religious people love kids, right? So it's... I have no idea where that's coming from. Uh, but I don't know, is, is this a really big thing or has that become a fashionable middle class concern? There's a really good film, really interesting film called First Reformed. But I worry that it's also quite a reaction film, but it's interesting anyway. Uh, it's, it, it, it's about precisely this concern. A man comes to a Lutheran minister and says, um, I don't want to have kids because the world is dying and I think it's immoral to do it. And it, and it becomes a theological argument about the nature of environmental destruction and so on, but it's very apocalyptic. Um, so, yeah, I feel like that's become a kind of middle-class talking point. I don't know. Do you think there are actually people not having kids because they think it will kill the planet? Um, no, I, I don't. I don't think there are. I suppose that it's not so much. Well, there are, like, pe- less people having, ch- less women having children. Like, that's true and birth rate. Yeah. I think that that's probably more to do with like various economic and social factors rather than environmental ones. Yeah, yeah. But like the, the point I'm making is more about like this is actually this is a a strand of thought about um not having children and that's a not having choosing not to have children is a good thing because a it, it's it's selfish to have kids. Yeah. In this context, 
ultimately like you know how could you bring them into the world that's all terrible everything is dying and how could you bring them into the world because you're basically um creating a larger burden like it has that um what's the word I'm looking for like Malthusian mm-hmm. element to it but yeah. I th- and I think it's important to to say that in times of crisis people have often turned to the reproduction of their identity or family lineage as a mode of resistance mm. so like to, to, to sort of I think it's a natural psychological response yeah. uh, if it, I think that probably one of the youngest populations in the world exists in the Gaza Strip. Mm. And there's plenty of evidence to say this is nothing to do with lack of access to contraception or education. It's nothing to do with that. But actually, there's studies that say it's closely related to the intifada. It's closely related to, like, resistance. And that, like, our, our people will continue to, you know to live on like the whole existence is resistance sort of idea that we will continue to live on in spite of all the horrors and like really if you're talking about the world is ending how could you bring a child into this terrible place I mean look at what happens in Gaza and look at like the futures that some of those children might have but there is something very powerful about being able to say like our people will persevere despite these circumstances because ultimately it gives people hope do I mean it yeah. gives people hope in that sort of there there is a a better future there is a possibility and if we have a movement or aspects of the movement that are talking about not having kids because it's selfish then you lose that aspect of hope you know you lose that idea of like we will prevail through these terrible times and that there's something to actually argue for Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, as we were discussing, it is a remarkable feature of the movement in general that it is made up of young people. Um, and I think they have a legitimate claim, right? It's the, the legitimate claim is the world is a common treasury. It's being monopolized and damaged by the rich and powerful. That to me is the, is, is the, is the legitimate claim and, and, and the one that makes the, a useful focus for an argument. It just shouldn't be waylaid into ideas which are not plausible because they are implausible, which is the world is ending. The world yeah. is coming to an end. I know that like, a lot of that stuff about like the having children, etc., that argument might seem fringe, but it's actually, it's what lies at the core of some of the arguments that people like David Attenborough put across about overpopulation. Yeah. And, and I can see the appeal of that. Like, we are... A number of people on a rock, like it has a finite resource, and there are now too many people to sustain that. I can see the logic and the appeal of that, but as soon as you start to scratch below those statistics and see where consumption and the environmental damage and why that is happening, you can see it's closely related to um, to capitalism, of course, right? And we know that. But these are not necessarily fringe ideas. The concept of overpopulation is very much in the mainstream and, you know, perpetuated by, you know, national treasures such as David Attenborough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, the entire roadshow is coming to Glasgow. I want to, how do you feel about it? 
Um, well, as I said to you on the phone the other night, it's um, my husband's, what he calls his uh, two uh, least favourite types of perverts, which is uh, world leaders and hippies. <laughs> um, all, all, all you need to complete the effect is imperialist propaganda. Which there will be uh, at that COP twenty six. I mean, Joe, big Joe Biden's flying in. Well, um, yeah, but he's flying into Edinburgh, and oh. he's getting helicoptered over for the Glasgow stuff, and then getting back on the helicopter back. He's he should not come in, Glasgow, like to he stay. Be, he should be coming in at Presswick Air, Airport. Well, dead brilliant. I really like the idea. Oh my god! This, and this is where my mind is at at the moment. Bearing in mind, I don't do drugs. But, like, imagine Joe Biden, like, on a raft carried by rats. <laughs> that, is, that is drug power. That is absolutely <laughs> drug power, isn't it? Imagine, like, Biden with, like, a fucking crown on, waving some American flags on this, like, raft held up by the Glasgow rats. He doesn't know what's going on. I, do you know what I mean? That, that could be any day of the week for him, carried through Glasgow by rats. That, <laughs> His mind's going in, in a dozen directions at once anyway. But that's like one of the ways to solve the rat crisis is employ them during COP26. Get them busy. Interesting. Interesting concept. Send that to Susan Aiken. I'll send it. I tell you what, it's better than some of her fucking patter on the topic. Uh, she's incredible, man. I, 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 I mean, you hear people say, is she performance art? I am starting to wonder. I saw a community campaigner in Glasgow saying this. She'll be gone after COP26. But then, you know, I don't know. Stupid stuff happens in Scottish politics. Like, the, the obviously incompetent and shit are constantly re- being reproduced and thrown back at us. I mean, this is why people should absolutely have children, because they'll get to, if you don't, then who will be there to observe the utter catastrophe and hilarity of Scottish politics? Well, like we literally had a debate in Parliament yesterday about rats. I mean, I haven't seen the newspapers this morning, but surely the headlines write themselves. Rats, yeah. politicians, not like, it, it's all there, it's all there. Um, but the burning question I have for you, David, is have you seen a rat in Glasgow? Loads. I, I'm not, I, I don't want to be um, angry from south side of Glasgow, but Queen's Park is full of rats. And it's something that became very noticeable over the pandemic. I suspect, by the way, this is a combination of cuts to services, right? Because about 100 cleansing workers have been cut in the city uh, and other stuff, right? And, and, and bin pickups and all kinds of stuff, right? And also, of course, there was a period where there were very few human beings around. And you, it was not uncommon when I was going on my daily state-sanctioned walk to see packs of rats in the daylight running around in the park. Right, <laughs> it's always a funny thing to see in the park. Cause see, when you just see a, see a, a bunch of rats, um, see if you go down somewhere like Bridge Street in Glasgow, any night of the week you will see ten rats, right, just scurrying around you. You can walk across that bridge like the Pied Piper. They're all around you. You know what I mean? You feel like you're bringing one of the plagues of Egypt. And uh, but when you see them in daylight scurrying around, like on the grass, they're just kind of like. I don't, it's, it's totally bizarre. I remember thinking, like, they're taking over and we're not going to get this back. This is like the seagulls. The rats have the land, the seagulls have the air. We're it's not getting also, this back. Also, the squirrels. Like, I mean, the way that grey squirrels are breeding surely is related to, like, some kind of vermin. Like, I mean, 
I went, I went and I put the bins out the other day and a squirrel had gnawed its way through the top of a fucking wheelie bin. My God. I mean, they, they're, they're disgusting, right? They're everywhere. And I have seen a rat, middle of the day, like cutting across a bit of grass. Off. Yeah. They've become, they've become very bold. Uh, like the squirrels. Yeah. Um, so the idea that this is all made up, but it's just, I don't know. It's not, it's not surprising anymore to see columnists and so on saying, don't put my great wee city and my great wee country down, right? The weird thing is, by the way, see whenever people said that about Brexit. Do you know when, like, Jacob Rees-Mogg would say, stop, stop putting Britain down. Britain's great, right? They'd be the first to go... This is Trumpist talk and so on. And then a few months later, it stopped trying to put my great wee city down. The whole world's looking at us. I can't stand that for all oh, it's, so it's so cringe. I mean, it honestly makes me dead inside. The, like, the, the big people are looking at us. They're looking at our little village. Don't 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 tell them about um the crazy old guy who lives at number nine. Don't tell them about the person who set the house on fire. Don't tell them about, about all our alcoholics and child abusers because the, the big people from the big city have come to town. Yeah, so- it reminds me of like when I worked for the the Department of Work and Pensions, like in their big office building. Like when I worked in there, right? Whenever they, they would occasionally be like a, maybe like a ministerial visit or like the permanent secretary would come up or like someone high up in the, the chain of command and the bureaucracy of the DWP, they would come. And like the day before, everyone, like all the managers would be running about being like, put it in your drawer, put it in your drawer. They're like cl- mad clearing desks, like people opening their desk drawer and scooping in their fucking ER mug. Right? Yeah. Your mouse mat, right? Band, yeah. like all that, like into the big bottom drawer, tidying up papers. And then they would come and everyone would be like sitting there looking at the screen, like typing, like yeah. a very obvious fake typing way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that. Like, that's what's happening is, like, don't don't talk Glasgow down. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that Glasgow is the best and the worst place to live in Scotland. Yeah. I think it's the city where, like, contradiction peaks. And it always has done throughout its whole history. Do you know what I mean? You've always had, like, the city of empire and the city of you know, militancy and, you know, internationalism clashing up against each other. Like, it's a, it's the kind of microcosm and it's happening, like, now around COP. People just have to, like, enjoy these massive contradictions of the fact that we are hosting COP and, like, you know, being this, like, I mean, it goes back to, like, things like the, the city of culture, European city of culture, but we also have, like, these extreme you know, austerity consequences, like mm-hmm. cuts. We have child poverty. We have, you know, these massive social problems at the same time as we have these things. And what happens when they, like, bump up against each other, as is happening now? Like, this is why, you know, Glasgow is always fascinating to me. Do you know what I mean? You know, you've got your obvious contradictions in terms of, like, within the working class, the the Protestant working class, the Irish Catholic working class, what happens when they, do you know what I mean? Like you reproduce a different type of a civic environment over and over and over again. And that's all that's happening now. And it speaks to a 
lack of imagination and understanding of politics that our columnists and politicians are going down the street of, oh, don't, don't talk us down, don't do Glasgow down. Like, there's literally a fucking rat at my door. Do you know what I mean? I get, like, I'm scared of being mugged by fucking squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> They're massive. No, no, but it, it's, it's sad. It's, it's always this thing of, of the provincial mindset, isn't it? That you don't, the weird thing is, you don't love the place you are. You love a fantasy version of it. You love what you imagine it might be one day, but we're not ready. So what people, what these people want is for people to think that Glasgow's like Helsinki or Reykjavik or something, right? What they want from say, which isn't what I want, by the way. Oh. Um, but I, I, there's, there's, you know, provincialism comes with a degree of self-hatred. It always has. And, and a hatred of the real image and reality of, of, uh, of the city and the need to substitute it for this great wee place thing. I, I just, it, it, it's such a kind of like, it's such an obvious neurosis, right? When you say, we want people to think that this is a good and just and egalitarian, because that's the height of kind of like petty bourgeois morality today. It's an egalitarian city, right? And then they're going to come and see that it's not an egalitarian city. And that what's what's ha- happening is that groups of um, uh, of of council workers are fighting against their employers because it's not an egalitarian place and it's like yeah but can we not just exude the image of equality and and suppress the reality like i i know people don't like these um uh these kind of metaphors but on a psychological plane it is a bit like an abusive household it is a bit like look we know that dad comes home drunk and beats everyone, right? But for the priest is coming round. The minister's coming round today. Set out the best biscuits, getting your Sunday best, right? What really matters when the minister is here is that everyone behaves and everyone pretends that everything's going fine and we're a model church family. Yeah, That's what matters. I don't miss I know that people hate that analogy. Like, and actually, I think that it's a bit off, right? It's not actually an abusive relationship it is the psyche of the middle class right everywhere you go people you speak to is that you put, i mean the fucking stiff upper lip shit do you know what i mean nobody ever knows what's going on like in your do you know i mean within your family you like go with your smiling face do you know what i mean you present the facade of respectability even if your home life or your family life is very, very chaotic. Like that is the kind of like aspirational, the middle-class family, like that's how it operates. I mean, that's the psychology of it. It's keeping up with the Joneses. Imagine it like a house in the suburbs, you know, the perfectly mowed lawn, the the trees that are shaped like little animals, (laughs) the white picket fence fantasy. it's just so that you fit in with everybody else but and nobody really knows what's going on behind the scenes like it's that mentality of like we're no longer that like shitty dirty city that we were you know actually oh my god I walked past a hipster the other day reading no mean city (laughs) um and yeah do I mean it's that idea of like everybody put on a big face big brave face you know we're getting the family photo taken 
And like you don't see like people with the fucking, you know, their knives ready out. And and every and every uh every detached house behind the white picket fence is a lie. This is an American analogy, of course, because we don't have white picket fences in Scotland. But every every each household is a lie. So for us, it's keeping up with the Nordics, right? We we're desperate to appear like these societies, but each of those societies is a lie as well. So Sweden is long past. So much it's, darkness. It's so much darkness in Sweden, right? And not just the not just the early nights, right? But so much. Sorry, that was a, that was a real dad joke there. Um, yeah, Sweden, you Norway is uh, not not quite as intense, but it's not the society that people think it is. And of course, it's based on, as people know, having a tiny population next to a huge well of oil, right? Um, and, and you could go on. I mean, Iceland, of course, famously catastrophically bankrupted by the 2008 crisis, one of the most kind of financialized societies per head of population in the world. So they're all lies as well. They're all dysfunctional families as well. Um, but each and every one of them has to keep up this pretense of competition for the status of modern thinking. It's like this New Zealand shit, egalitarian, forward thinking. We're not holding on to dreams of our past, aren't we? I mean, do you know, is, is Sweden not holding on to a, to a, a, a lie about where it was, say, in the early 1980s or something, or whenever the peak of the kind of social democratic consensus was in Swedish society. Um, but yeah, it's it's just so predictable and irritating to see it wheeled out again for COP26. Um, yeah, because obviously they wheeled it out for the Commonwealth Games. Oh, yeah. But I will um, say this, the Commonwealth Games has a wonderful legacy. It's now got like a big velodrome that nobody uses and a car park. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'm looking forward to see what we get out of COP26. Uh, I don't know, maybe like a bike lane? Uh, there, there, are, there are bike lanes being constructed. Okay, we'll, 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 have, we'll take a bike lane. Um, I see they've put a huge banner on that crane. This is the, the one last thing before we go. It's obviously triggered my whole neurosis about that bit of Glasgow as well, right? The medium-sized conference venue next to the crane, which if you type into Google, if you type Glasgow into Google, right, you will see a medium-sized conference venue that's a bit silver. You will see a a, a slightly larger conference venue where gigs take place. And then you'll see a crane, right? And uh, you might see a bridge as well that looks a bit funky. And if, according to the world and according to Glasgow City Council, this is what Glasgow looks like. It's two conference venues and a disused piece of industrial equipment, right? Uh, no one lives there, by the way. It's it's down river or up river. I don't know which way the water flows in my hemisphere. Uh, from the city centre and from where all the bits in Glasgow where people live, right? But it's like it's like a, an industrial park for international conferences. And as far as everyone knows, this is literally what Glasgow looks like. No, it's, I mean, but it is, in a way, perfect. A perfect representation, it's yeah. It's perfect representation of the city. Here, where we have turned a strong, militant, fighting, industrial past into a piece of public fucking gonk art for international visitors. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what Finiston can represent, surely. 
Yeah, and, and people say Glasgow's the model for export all over the world. And Glasgow was an, a very early experiment in, in turning a, you know, in creating a post-industrial landscape and a post-industrial city. So I'm sorry to say if there are any listeners around the world, if you're if you live in Pittsburgh or something and they've turned uh, you know, one of your old factories into a, a conference venue, I'm sorry to say that might be our fault. Yeah, that's what we're exporting to the world. If you're living in the mausoleum of your father's and mother's more like prosperous uh, <laughs> lifetimes, I'm sorry to say that we inflicted that particular psychological torture on you. I mean, awful. <laughs> um, was there anything else I was going to say? Uh, well, just lastly, I'm really glad that there are strikes taking place during COP26 so that those contradictions are exposed because they need yeah. to be exposed. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I would take, I, I'd hope for them a victory, you know, under any circumstances and ahead of the, of the conference, if that's the way it pans out. But it has been, it's just been something to hold on to during this period of trial, because the one thing I'm not definitely not going to be swept up into is the, is the, is the Glasgow deal. See when a deal, whatever it is, finally emerges from this conference. I mean, I'm going to look at the deal, right? But I can't stand the enforced celebration that is going to take place. Just, I mean, it's probably the final point that needs to be made because what is this conference for? America and China and various other powers are going to be cracking their skulls together, you know, like, like kind of buffalo in mating season or something, right? And trying to carve out their ownership of what is it, a four trillion market in renewables or something, right? That's what this comes down to. That's what's actually going on inside the hall, right? There's going to be a a bonanza. People are going to be buying and selling. And one of the people who are going to be selling, by the way, is Scotland. So this is Scotland's green investment portfolio is is going to be flashed um, before the eyes of the world's rich and powerful. And we're going to start selling off chunks of our land. And that's going to be a part of the, the Glasgow deal the Glasgow legacy of COP26 chunks of Scotland's renewables assets and therefore its literal physical elements its land its its waves its wind and so on uh, are going to be sold to the highest bidder and the ownership of Scotland by foreign capital will continue uh, and uh, I'm not going to be celebrating this no matter how it's trussed up as an advance for human civilization. Um, what we're witnessing in Glasgow over the coming weeks uh, is, well, imperialism. Like it's the domination of the world system by powerful states and and big capital. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm not going to be found talking about how our great wee country birthed some historic, you know, development that saved mankind from imminent doom, because uh, that's not what it is. Excellent place to end.